It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Over the last 10 years or so, CrossFit has become a really popular way for people to exercise. And one of the reasons that many people say that they love doing CrossFit is because of the community of people that are surrounding them, encouraging them, motivating them to do their exercise workouts. And something that's said about CrossFit is it's the only sport where the loudest cheers are for the last to finish. Uh, you see, if you ever do it, you know, you got these people coming around you, cheering for you, wanting you to, you know, complete, motivating you to help you finish your workouts. And, um, you know, that's a huge motivation that if you were just kind of at the gym by yourself, you'd probably say, you know what, I'm just going to quit. You know, this is too much work. This is too hard. This is too much weight or whatever it would be. But when you got those people around you kind of shouting and screaming and encouraging you, um, you know, it's, it's motivation. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is because if you want to be successful in getting into shape, that's something that's very helpful. You know, it's helpful to have people who are going to encourage you, who are going to motivate you to work out, motivate you to put in the extra work, motivate you, you know, to, to do um, the extra things, to give it your all. You know, that definitely the times I look back in my life where I was in the best shape of my life was, you know, when I was surrounded by coaches or surrounded by friends or surrounded by people who motivated me, who I worked out with, who encouraged me and challenged me to give it my all, to not skip, you know, workouts. Uh, And so if you want to be physically in shape, you need people in your life to motivate you. But the same is true spiritually. You know, if you want to be spiritually in shape, If you want to spiritually grow, which is what we've been looking at here in Hebrews chapter 6, you need people in your life who are there to encourage you, who are there to motivate you to do that. And that's what the author of Hebrews does here for his readers in Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 20. He's giving them encouragement. He's giving them motivation to spiritually grow. And we noted it's right on the heels of this rebuke of this warning, of what their problems are and the consequences of those problems. And right after sharing that, he moves into this challenge of motivation and encouragement. All right, here, guys, I want to help you. I want to get you to a place where you're spiritually mature. I want to help you get to that place where you can grow. Now, last week, we looked at the first three things that the author of Hebrews shares that uh, we should do to motivate us to spiritually change and grow. First, we need to have believers in our lives who are confident in what God has for us and His ability to help us change and who encourage us in that. Second, we need to know that God does not forget about us and He doesn't forget about the things that we've done for Him. And third, we need to have continual diligence in living for Jesus. Well, the author of Hebrews is not done with his motivation. Those aren't the only three things that he's going to share. He's got two more things that he wants us to know, that he wants his initial readers to know that will help motivate them 
to spiritually mature, to change, to grow in their relationship with God. And so we're going to see from verses 9 through 20 that the author has five things total that he wants to motivate us in. And this morning we're going to pick up from where we left off and we're going to look at the fourth thing the author shares with us to motivate us to spiritually change and grow, which are in verses 12 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 6, which says this. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation, Confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. This God, determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So remember last week, the final motivation that we looked at, it was in verse 11 and it went into the beginning of verse 12 and it was this idea of having that continual diligence in living for the Lord. But the opposite of that was what he was discouraging us from, don't be sluggish. And now we pick up in the second part of verse 12 this morning as we continue with these motivations and the author is telling us, I want you to imitate a certain group of people. These people who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to get a list of some of the greatest people in the Old Testament who did just this. They had faith and patience in inheriting the promises, but there's one name that the author uses both in Hebrews chapter 11 and also here as an example in Hebrews chapter 6, and that is Abraham. So the challenge is you guys need to imitate people who have this faith and patience in inheriting the promises of God. You see, the author wants these believers to understand that they need their faith in the promises of God connected with patience. And that was one of the problems that they had. They had a lack of patience when it came to experiencing and receiving the promises of God in their life. And really, the lack of patience is connected to their circumstances. As we've noted many times, the problem that these believers have is that they are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus and preaching the gospel and living for the Lord. And so their circumstances bring this persecution, and they're struggling with a patience in the midst of their circumstances in order to receive the promises of God. You see, they looked at their circumstances of being persecuted, and I'm sure many of them were thinking, you know what, these certain promises of God, they must not be for us. Because if they were for us, then, then we wouldn't be going through this or experiencing that or, or having these things take place. You see, their circumstance seemed to be telling them something different than what God had promised. And so they're struggling. Struggling to have both faith and patience in the promises of God. You know, and I think this is something that we can relate to because we struggle with this as well. 
We sometimes have circumstances that are in our lives that seem to be telling us something different than what the promises of God and His Word reveal to us. For example, God promises to never leave us or forsake us. And I'm sure that you have probably experienced a circumstance in your life where you didn't feel that, where you felt like, you know what, my circumstances are telling me I'm all alone. I'm in this by myself. There's nobody here for me. And so you kind of think, well, you know, the circumstances seem to be saying something different than the promise of God, which he says, he never leaves me. He never forsakes me. You know, God promises to work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I think there's also sometimes where we go through circumstances and we come to a conclusion, nothing good could come from this. Uh, My circumstances seem to be telling me something different than what God promises me. And when that happens, we, like these believers, often struggle with having both faith and patience in the promises of God. Well, because of this, the author of Hebrews encourages not only these Hebrew believers, but he also encourages us to imitate those people who have both faith and patience in the promises of God. And he's going to use Abraham as a specific example of someone we should imitate. Someone who definitely had faith, but also patience in the promises that God gave to him. Now, of all the people that the author could have chosen, I mean, as I said, you know, we have a list in Hebrews chapter 11, the the list could be even bigger than that. He he could have chosen many people to say, here's a, a good example of someone to imitate, but he chooses Abraham, and I think Abraham is a great choice, and the reason he's a great choice is because his circumstances seem like they were telling him something different than what the promises of God were. And I think this is something the Hebrew believers and us could definitely relate to very well. So the author goes on to say in verses 13 through 15, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently adored, he obtained the promises. Something important to note here is Abraham is the father of Judaism. So anybody who is connected to Judaism, I mean, this would be the person that more than anyone else you would be very familiar with. His life, the promises God gave to him, you know, the struggles, how he lived. I mean, if you grew up in Judaism, Abraham would be someone that you would be extremely familiar with. Now, remember, these believers, they came out of Judaism. So they grew up with a great knowledge and understanding of Abraham, and the author knows this. And so he doesn't go into a lot of detailed explanation about Abraham's life and experiences and the promises that God gave. He just gives this kind of quick general statement, and then he makes a really important point with it because he realizes with just this statement alone, it's going to bring up all these memories and ideas and thoughts about Abraham that these guys would be very familiar with, and so I don't need to spend a bunch of time laying that out for them. But the problem is now many of us are probably not as familiar with Abraham's life as these Jewish believers were. And I think it's important that I highlight 
some important aspects of Abraham's life so that we can better understand the point the author's trying to make here, how he wants to encourage us with these things. And so let's just take a moment and kind of do a little quick overview highlight of some of the significant things of Abraham's life to help us understand this better. God first made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and his name wasn't Abraham then, it was Abram. And God said this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord God had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abraham, and he gives him a promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, meaning, Abraham, you're going to have lots of descendants. And also, I promise that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is speaking of the Messiah. Jesus Christ is going to come through the descendants of Abraham. He's going to die on the cross for everyone. And so through Abraham, all people will be blessed because Jesus is going to come through him. Now, at this point in time, it's important to note that Abraham is 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and they have a big problem. Sarah's barren. They're not able to have children, and they're really kind of now past the childbearing age. So based on their circumstances, Abraham and Sarah, you know, they got a lot of reasons not to believe this promise. They got a lot of reasons, hey God, uh, I think you might have mistake uh, who you chose here. You know, maybe you want those younger folks over there in their 20s. I mean, you know, I'm 75, my wife's 65. What are you talking about, you know, children and descendants? I mean, she's barren. Circumstances would have told them all these things. We've tried for so many years and have never been successful. We've never heard of anything like this happening before. But even in the midst of seeing their circumstances that seem to contradict the promise, they're willing to take a step of faith and actually do what God calls them to do. But you know what? It's a rocky start. They're not fully obedient to what God says. God says to leave everybody, and they decide to take Abram's dad and Lot, his nephew. And instead of going to the promised land, they go to Haran. And so there, there's, a, there's a rocky start, but they finally get to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, once again, God comes and he gives another promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Once again, hey, you're going to have descendants, you're going to have a child, and I'm going to give the land here, the promised land, to them. Now, right after that, there's a famine that comes into the land. And, and so Abram makes a choice. God has called me to be here. He wants me to be here, but there's a famine. So I'm going to disobey God and I'm going to go down to Egypt. And that brings a lot of problems into his life that we won't get into. But the reality is God delivers him from those problems, leads him back to the promised land. And once he gets back again, God reiterates the promise again in Genesis 13. 14 through 17, God says, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. 
For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So now God again, Abram, I'm telling you again and again and again this promise. Well, Abram's nephew Lot, he chooses to go live in this wicked city called Sodom. And as he's there, these kings come and they capture everybody in Sodom. And and Abram finds out about it and he takes his servants and he arms them and they go and they do this raid and and they get everybody, Lot and all the people who were captured and all their stuff, and and they get it back. And on the way back to where he was in the promised land, Abram meets this very fascinating character a man by the name of Melchizedek. Remember, we we mentioned that before this warning, and this is where we're going next chapter. We're going to see all these details about Melchizedek. But after the encounter with Melchizedek, once again, God gives Abram a promise. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So here we see Abram struggling. He's struggling with the promise And the reason he's struggling is because his circumstances are still crying out, this can't happen. How am I going to make a a father to these great descendants when I don't even have one child? The only person in my house is my servant, Eliezer. Lord, I need an heir. And God reminds Abram again and gives him, no, 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 Eliezer, that's not going to be your heir from your own body is going to come a child. And God's doing this to help Abram believe. Because guess what? Abram's older now than he was the first time God shared it. He has more reason now to doubt than the first time in the sense of, you know, his body has gotten farther along, less likely to give birth or to be able to get someone pregnant. Well, we're told something very important happens here in verse 6. Abram believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God's already given the promise several times, but now Abram finally gets to a place where he says, you know what, I just believe it. I accept it. I believe what you're telling me. The promises are true, even though my circumstances seem to be telling me something else. God, I believe the promises that you've given. And this is the fourth time now that God has given this problem, uh, promise sorry, to Abram. And then we see that God makes this one-sided covenant where they take these animals, they cut them in two, and it was meant to be God and Abram together walking down. But God goes by himself because God's saying, hey, I am the only one responsible for making sure this happens. And this is a covenant where he's once again helping assure Abram, I will do what I promised to do. But Abram and Sarah, they keep getting older. 
More and more years pass by, still no promised child. Their circumstances are causing them to doubt the promises of God, and so they decide, you know what, maybe God needs our help. Maybe the reason the promise hasn't happened is because we haven't helped God out enough, and so Sarah comes up with a plan, and Abraham and her talk, and she said, you know what, why don't you sleep with my maidservant Hagar, and we can produce a child that way. And so Abram does, and they have Ishmael, which was not the child of promise. Abraham's 86 at this point in time. Sarah's 76. They've been waiting 11 years for the promise. And as we look at what they did, I want you to keep that in mind. You know, we don't like to wait 11 minutes. They waited 11 years, and still they hadn't received the promise that God gave them. Well, then it gets worse. 13 more years go by. And I'm sure in those 13 years, they probably thought, you know what, after what we just did with Ishmael, maybe this is never going to happen. Maybe God's never going to give us this. 13 years have gone by, and then God comes back to Abraham, and he's now 99 years old, and God makes another promise to Abraham in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So God once again reiterates the promise that maybe Abram and Sarah were starting to wonder, is this ever going to happen? And then God says, to help you believe it even more, I'm changing your name. Your name's no longer going to be Abram, which was father of many, which would have been a pretty difficult name to have when you have no children. Hey, what's your name? Father of many. Oh, how many kids do you have? I don't have any. Now imagine, hey, Abram, how you doing? Well, actually, my name has changed to Abraham. Could you please call me Abraham Father of many nations is what Abraham means. And it's just kind of like, why would you change your name to that? You don't have any kids. But it would put Abraham in a place where he had to say, you know what? God promised me this. And so when I tell people, don't call me Abraham, call me Abraham, he now has to just say, you know what? I'm going to share with people the promise that God has given me. So God makes very clear, this baby is coming through Sarah. Don't you dare try to use anyone else again. And at this point in time, Abram's 99 and Sarah's 89. And God tells him, when you have this son, name him Isaac. Well, Abram laughed at the idea of he and Sarah having a baby at the age that they were. And just a few months after that, God once again speaks to them. And this time he gives them a time frame. Every time he just says, the promise is here. I promise I'll do it. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, yeah, you've been saying that for 25 years. When's it going to happen, Lord? Well, now he finally says, here is the time frame. Genesis 18.10. And he said, I will certainly return according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. The time of life is referring to the nine months it takes for a baby to develop and be born. So now here's the time frame. God's saying, hey, Sarah, nine months from now, you're going to give birth to a baby. So Abram laughed before, and now Sarah laughs at the idea of her being 90 years old 
and having a child. And, and they're both laughing because their circumstances are telling them that this promise is so absurd in many respects. I mean, how does a, a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who's barren have a child? And they're kind of laughing at the idea of that. But yet, their circumstances were not a hindrance to God fulfilling His promise. God fulfilled His promise. Sarah got pregnant. She had a baby at 90. Abraham, 100. And so I want you to think about this. They waited 25 years from when the promise was given until the promise was fulfilled, which is such a long time. I don't think any of us probably have waited 25 years for anything that we really probably want. I mean, that is a, a huge amount of time to wait. And I want you to think about this. The entire 25 years of their wait their circumstances kept telling them, this promise can't happen. Actually, the longer they waited and the older they got, the more their circumstances would just say, hey, Abram, now you're 10 years older than you were before. Sarah, you're 10 years older. It's more unlikely that this would ever happen. But what their circumstances were saying were wrong, and God's promises were true. This is the challenge for these Hebrew believers, for us. We so often think, you know what? I'm led by my circumstances. I believe in my circumstances instead of being led by the promises of what God says to me. When my circumstances seem to be saying something different, I might think, well, God, you're not with me when he says I am. God, you couldn't bring good when he says I will. We need to say, you know what? I'm not going to follow the circumstances, but I'm going to follow the truth of the promises of God. Now, you would think that it's done, man. They finally had the baby, and this, this patience and faith and the promises of God, it's over. But the greatest test is still to come. Ten years, maybe 15 years, we're not exactly sure. Later, Genesis 22.2 says, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Think about this. God is saying, hey, this promised child that you waited 25 years for, that you love so dearly, that you've had for 10 or however many years, uh, Abram, I, I want you to take that child. I want you to go to this mountain and I want you to sacrifice to kill this child for me. Wait a second, Lord. I mean, the promise is not just for this child, but for all these descendants that are going to come through this child. So here's the test. Do you really believe my promise that I can do this for you? And so Abraham passes the test. He takes Isaac. He builds the altar. He places Isaac there. He grabs the knife, and he is ready to kill his son, and God sends an angel to stop him. And then there's a ram that is a substitute for Isaac. But you know what? God does something right after that more than just another promise. He's given a promise and a promise and another promise and the same promise over and over again. He says, you know what? Here, I'm going to take it a step further, Abram. I'm going to give you an oath. God says this in Genesis 22, 16 through 18. By myself I have sworn, that's the oath, says the Lord, 
because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sands which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So six times God gives a promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you a father that's going to have all these descendants and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. One, two, three, four, five, six, all at different times of Abraham's life. And now he moves from that and takes it a step further and says, I want to give you an oath. Abraham, I swear to you that what I promised you, I will do. Well, now that you hopefully understand these things about Abraham's life, you're going to better understand what the author of Hebrews wants to share with us. So let's get back to verses 13 and 18. Um, Read it one more time and we'll look at it. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiply and I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the uh, immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So here the author is emphasizing both the patience and the faith that Abraham had in the promises of God. And notice what the author says about the oath here. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and and multiplying I will multiply you. Here the author is quoting that oath that we read there in Genesis 22:17, And he shares with us why God made this oath to Abraham. Notice what he says in verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. The author is just telling us the typical way in that time that men used oaths. And it's the same way that we use oaths today. If you are a witness in a court of law, Before you can share your testimony, you have to take an oath. You put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. What you're doing is swearing by something greater. You are swearing by God. You're saying, I swear to God that what I'm about to say is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, the reason we do this is because we know that people have a tendency to lie. And so we make them take an oath on something greater. And that person knows if they lie under oath that they're going to receive a greater penalty for doing so. And this usually causes them to tell the truth. And it also gives those who are listening to their testimony a greater confidence that what they're saying is true. So the author is just bringing up, this is what happens with people. They make oaths. They swear by something greater because they have a tendency to lie. So they need these oaths to to bring a confidence that people can have to trust what they're saying. 
Now, since God, he can't swear by anything greater than himself because he's the greatest thing that there is, he just swears by himself. You see, we will say, I, I swear to God, and God will just say, well, I, I swear by myself because you're saying I swear to God because he's the greatest thing, and God is saying, well, yes, I am the greatest thing, and so I'll just swear by myself because there's nothing greater than me that I could swear by. But the author goes on to say in verse 17 and 18, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So the reason, as I mentioned, that we make an oath is because we have tendencies to lie but here, the author makes something very clear. It's impossible for God to lie. So if we're giving oaths because we have a tendency to lie, well, why did God give an oath? It's impossible for him to lie, so you know, we should just be able to trust him. Well, God doesn't do it for himself. He does it for Abraham. He does it for you and I. Because he knows, hey, there are times we struggle to believe the promises that God has given especially when our circumstances seem to say something different. And so God says, you know what? For you, I will swear. For you, I will make this oath so that you can believe in my promises. So we're told God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. The heirs of the promise that the author is referring to are believers in Jesus. That God is not just speaking to Abraham or Abraham's uh, physical heirs or descendants who are Jewish, but the Bible tells us that anyone who believes in Jesus is a spiritual heir of Abraham and uh, receives the promises. So we are all heirs of the promise. So God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel. Now this word here, immutability, means unchanging. So God wanted us to see his counsel, his word, his promises as something that never changes. So God's saying, hey, if I say I'll do it, then I will. I don't change what I say in that regard. And the way that God showed that his promises are unchanging is by making an oath. Now, here's what the author says is the result of that for you and I. That by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, he might have strong, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The two immutable or unchanging things that the author is referring to here are the promises of God. They don't change. And the oath of God, it doesn't change. And notice when the author speaks of the promises and the oath of God, he emphasizes something very important. It's impossible for God to lie. So when he gives a promise, it's true. When he gives an oath, you can take it to the bank. And since it's impossible for God to lie, we have strong consolation. This word uh, consolation means encouragement. So because God can't lie, when he gives promises and oaths, it gives us a strong encouragement to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, this Greek word translated hope means a confident expectation of coming good. 
So what the author is saying is, since God can't lie, the promises and oath that he gives us should give us encouragement to lay hold of the hope that comes because of the promises of God. That we should lay hold of this confident expectation. We should have a confident expectation in the coming good because God promised that that good was going to come to us and he made an oath to declare that it would happen. You see, the thing that motivated Abram to have faith and patience in the promises of God is the fact that God kept reminding Abraham about his promises. As Abraham struggled putting his faith in the promises of God because his circumstances seemed to be saying something different and the time frame seemed to be like, well, year after year, 25 years go by, it was a struggle and God keeps coming back to Abraham six different times, reiterating the promise to help motivate Abraham to believe those promises. And then God takes it one step further and he makes an oath and swears to Abraham that he would do what he promised. And that was just such a great motivation for Abraham to not only have faith, but also patience in the promises of God. Romans 4, 18-21 shares this about Abraham. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Notice this. Abraham's circumstances were contrary to hope. They were contrary to a confident expectation of coming good. But you know what? In hope, he believed. Even though his circumstances said one thing, he believed in the promise, in the confidence of what that promise brought to his life. And you know what it did? It motivated him to patiently wait 25 years for that promise to finally be fulfilled. So the fourth thing that motivates us to spiritually change and grow is the confident expectation of coming good that we have because of the promises and oaths of God who cannot lie. You know, one of the biggest reasons why we should be motivated to grow spiritually, to live for God, are the promises, the many, many promises of God throughout His Word. Now, the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers, hey, imitate Abraham who both had faith and patience in the promises of God, and that was their struggle. Hey, if you guys will just believe in the promises of God, if you will believe in the promise of heaven, it will motivate you to live for God in the midst of your difficult circumstances, in the midst of your persecution. You see, they could get to a place if they would just believe in the promises of God in the midst of their suffering, they could come to a fully different conclusion. The one they have now is, you know what, we're, we're considering walking away from Jesus and going back to Judaism. But you know what, there's another person who went through even worse suffering than them, and that's the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul, you know what he had? He had patience and faith in the promises of God, and his conclusion to his suffering was very different. And if they will do what the Hebrew uh, author is sharing, they could have the same conclusion 
and view of suffering like Paul did, and so can we. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but are the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, the only way you can have this mindset as you go through persecution and suffering and, and trials and hardships is if you really believe in the promises of God. That you know that, you know what, I hold to these things. I trust that God's with me. I trust that he can bring good here. I trust that I'm going to heaven. I trust that he will reward me for all eternity for anything that I do for him in this life. And that's when you can get to the place where you say, for this light affliction, it's light in comparison to what we gain in heaven, is but for a moment. When we look at the, the short amount of time we have compared to eternity, but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So this fourth thing that motivates us to spiritually change and grow is the confident expectation of coming good that we can have because of the promises and oaths of God who cannot lie. And the fifth and final motivation that the author here gives is in verses 19 and 20. It says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author tells us this hope, this hope that he's been referring to, this hope in the promises of God, we have as an anchor of the soul, and it's both sure and steadfast. You know, the author is painting a picture for us, and he's the only one in the whole Bible who paints this picture, this picture of an anchor. And an anchor really had a twofold purpose at that time. First, the anchor allows the ship to maintain the progress it has made. If you don't want to get taken back from where you just went or, or drawn with the current this way or that way, well, you need to put down the anchor or you're going to be moved and drawn off course. It helps you to maintain your progress. The second purpose of the anchor was to keep the ship from being pulled into a storm and wrecked. So the rougher the weather, the more important your anchor is. Now, in order for your anchor to properly function, it needs to be sure and steadfast. And that's what the author says. Our anchor is sure and it's steadfast. Now, the Greek word translated sure means firm and secure. And the Greek word translated steadfast means stable. Now, there are two important things that, that must happen in order for your anchor to properly function. First, it must have a firm and secure connection to the ship. So you can have the greatest anchor there is. It could be the biggest anchor. It could be made out of the, the most sturdy uh, iron or whatever. But if it's not connected to the ship and you throw that thing overboard, yeah, it's going to sink down to the bottom. It's going to land there and it's going to do you absolutely no good because you're not connected to it. The ship's not connected to it. And so if you're not connected to the anchor, it's worthless to you. The second thing that must happen in order for the anchor to work properly is it must have a stable connection to what it's resting on. 
As the anchor gets to the, the bottom, wherever that may be, if it's in a lake or if it's in an ocean, it, once it reaches the bottom, it needs to have something that it can have a stable connection to. Because if it doesn't, when the storm moves the ship, <laughs> it's going to move the anchor and the ship's going to not stay in the same place. So for an anchor to function properly, it needs to have this firm and secure connection to the ship and a stable connection to whatever it's resting on. Now, in the analogy that the author is giving, we are the ship. The anchor is our hope in the promises of God. And the anchor of hope is a great and effective anchor, first because it's firmly and securely connected to us through faith, and second, because it has a stable connection to where it's resting. And this is where it gets great. Where is it resting? Where is our anchor resting that is a stable place that can give us security? Well, notice what the author says in verses 19 and 20. Which enters a presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I want you to think about this. Typically an anchor, it goes down. You put it in the water, it goes down. Well, the authors say, you know what, our anchor's resting place actually isn't down, it's up. It's in heaven. It enters the presence of God behind the veil in the Holy of Holies in heaven, where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered for us. And so what the author is saying is that our hope is anchored in Jesus, who is in the Holy of Holies in heaven, in the presence of God in heaven. And Jesus is our forerunner. He has gone before us, which means we are afterrunners. We follow Jesus to heaven. And the author paints this picture of the Holy of Holies in heaven because that's where Jesus dwells now. And he gets back to the point that he left off. Remember, before he started this warning, he talked about Jesus being the greatest high priest, greater than any other high priest, and his priesthood was according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he stops. He says, you know what, i got to give you this warning. And now he trans just transitions back to where he left us with Jesus the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And next chapter, he's going to get into a bunch of details about that. But here is making a wonderful point to motivate these Hebrew believers in us to spiritually change and spiritually grow. And that's the fifth and final motivation, which is our hope is securely anchored to Jesus in heaven, who is our forerunner that we will one day join. You know, this should be a big reason for why we are motivated to live for Jesus, a big reason why we're motivated to grow in our spiritual walk with Jesus, because we have such a great hope in him and we can be confident he went before us to heaven and so i can know i will follow him he's made it possible he's shown he rose from the dead which gives me confidence that i will he went to heaven which gives me confidence that i will there's a hope in him there's a confident expectation of coming good because jesus proved that he has the power to give and do what he claimed he could do for us and that amazing hope should impact how we live on this earth it should motivate us to live for Jesus. And so if you're going through difficulties like the Hebrew believers, dealing with trials, persecution, struggles, let these things motivate you. Know that you have an anchor in Jesus and let the hope you have in Jesus, 
Let the confident expectation of the promises of God, because he promised and gave an oath and he cannot lie, motivate you to spiritually change and grow. Now, something that I always find encouraging and motivating is when you get to hear how God has personally worked in an individual's life. You know, it's one of the things I love going on mission trips. You just get to hear everyone share their testimony, share what God has done in their life. And it's just a motivation. Like, man, if God can do that for them, he can do it for me. And so we're going to finish this morning with Mike. He's going to share his testimony with us just as a a follow-up of encouragement of what God's able to do. So, Mike, why don't you come on up uh, and share your testimony with us? Good morning, everyone. 